If just turn back to the portion we have read. We have read in the prophecy of Zechariah and in chapter 3. We want to look at the portion from 1 through to 7. And God willing, in the evening, I would like to look at the portion from 8 to 10. We can just read verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now, this is the fourth of eight visions, followed actually with a symbolical transaction in chapter 6, but the fourth of eight visions that were given to the prophet Zechariah in one night by the Lord uh, by way of encouragement to his people, to the church, to the theocracy of Israel, the church of the Old Testament, by way of encouragement at a difficult time in their history. To that extent, it's a portion that's very suitable to our own day, especially to the faithful remnant within our own day who seek to give place to the Lord, give him that place that uh, belongs to him, the place of preeminence, uh, who find themselves surrounded by a a world that is opposed to that uh, way of living. It's a message of encouragement that was given to Zechariah and is applicable still to such a remnant in our own day. The vision, the, these visions were not dreams. They were, he was quite wide awake as he received them. They were more like being in a trance. But uh, words were not really spoken. But uh, he, 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 the message was, through, was, was clear nevertheless. It was a clear message from the Lord on each occasion and a message of encouragement on each occasion to the church, to the theocracy of Israel. <laughs> Now, there's three main characters in this uh, part, this particular vision. And these are Joshua, the high priest, and uh, Satan, and the angel of the Lord. Joshua was the high priest who came back uh, from uh, Babylon. You know how Cyrus, the ruler in Babylon, uh, allowed the children of Israel to return to their own land after 70 years of captivity. Zerubbabel was the temporal ruler of the, of, the, of the remnant who came back, but Joshua the high priest was the ecclesiastical leader, as it were. And that was his role. He was the leader, uh, the leader of the church, of the theocracy of Israel that came back from Babylon. But it's not really in that capacity that we, that we look at him, not in a personal capacity. Rather, he is representative as the high priest. He is a representative of the whole theocracy, of the whole nation of Israel. And as I said, the church of the Old Testament is a representative of the church. 
And it's in that way that we're going to look at things today. The encouragement is to the church. The church of the Old Testament, but applicable still to us as the church of the New. Joshua then, representative of the theocracy of Israel, the high priest. Satan is there. Satan is there as the accuser. That's his that's, that's what he does. He accuses and he tries to find fault with the church. We'll find out more as we go along. And then there's the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is <coughs> the second person of the Trinity, <coughs> appearing in the form of a man in the Old Testament. Sometimes we call this a theophany. Remember how he appeared to Joshua um, as um, Joshua was having crossed Jordan with his people. He was surveying the walled city of Jericho and how possibly how he was going to how he was going to make an assault on that city. And the angel of the Lord, a man appeared to him, and he's described as the captain of the hosts, and. Uh, he was more than a man because he said to Joshua, take off your shoes and off your feet, the place of which you're, the, this is holy ground. He was a divine person appearing in the form of a man. Well, that's the way that you find the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. And when you come to the new, it's not just in the form of a man, it's one who takes our nature, divine person who takes our nature into union with himself in the miracle of the incarnation. But in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appearing, divine person appearing in the form of a man. You find reference to him also in the Psalms. The angel of the Lord encamps and ground encompasseth all those about to do and fear and them delivereth. That's a second, second character then. There's Joshua, representative of the church. There's a The angel of the Lord, as I've just said, and then there's Satan. Satan in his capacity as the accuser of the brethren. And still by way of introduction, we've noticed that uh, Joshua's representative of the church, of the theocracy of the Old Testament, and that is our cue. The headings that we want to look at today from this portion are as follows. The condition of the church, the condition of that theocracy, the theocracy of Israel. And secondly, the adversary of the church, and that's Satan, of course. And then thirdly, the advocate of the church. Not the advocate as in a court of law, but uh, the advocate as you described in the New Testament, the paraclete, the strengthener, the comforter of the church. These three headings this morning, eh, from 1 to 7, the condition of the church, the adversary of the church, and the advocate, the paraclete, the strengthener of the church. First then, the condition of the church the condition of the church at that time. 
a remnant had returned, as I've said, from Babylon. Under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the temporal leader, and Joshua, the ecclesiastical leader. And when they came back from Babylon, they were full of enthusiasm for the rebuilding of Zion, the rebuilding of the church, the rebuilding of the cause of God. Seventy years of captivity had left things at a very, in a very low, at a very low state. You can imagine how the land would be overgrown with weeds. You can imagine how the walls had fallen under the the enemies and. Uh, it was, a, it, was a, it was a huge task that stood before them. But they set about it with a will. They set about it with great enthusiasm. And uh, in a very short time they had laid the foundation of that new temple. And within a year they had established uh, the altar of burnt offering and the sacrificial system that went along with that. So things went went along very well at the beginning. But soon that enthusiasm withered. Soon the enthusiasm gave way to declension. They got caught up with the enormous nature of the task. They got caught up with the spirit of the age. They wanted for themselves luxurious houses like those around them. Scripture speaks of them as sealed houses. They got caught up with a spirit of self-pity. They got caught up with a spirit of divisiveness. There was only a remnant that had come back from the captivity and they felt, why should we be engaged in all of this work when so many of our brethren have stayed behind in Babylon? And on top of that, there was the, the enemies the world was seeking to oppose them in everything that they were doing in the rebuilding of that temple. Accusing them to the authorities of being treacherous against the state. And soon the enthusiasm, as I said, withered. And soon the enthusiasm, when it became, it became, a, it became a church, it became a backslidden church. That's what happened to them. But under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, they were brought to a conviction of their sin. They were brought to a conviction of their sin. They were brought to repentance. And they came back to the work. They put their shoulders to the wheel and once again they set about the rebuilding of the temple. And it's interesting in the vision, in the, in the, in the symbolical vision that's before us, Joshua is spoken of as standing before the angel of the Lord. And that's a technical term for engaged in worship of the Lord, engaged in service of the Lord. That's what's spoken of the Levitical tribe. They were, to, they were standing before the Lord. They were engaged in his worship and in his service. They came back then. They came, there, was a, there was a measure of repentance and they came back to putting their hands to the plough again. But as they came back, 
they were conscious still of the sin. This, they, they, were, they, they were still very conscious of the, the sin of their declension, the sin of their backsliddenness. They had turned from it, but this, they, were, they were conscious of the pollution of that still holding them. It's described in the vision as filthy garments. Well, it's as if they had put the filthy garments aside when they turned to, when they, when they turned back to the work. But the smell of these filthy garments still clung to them, if you like. They, they were still conscious of the burden of their sin, even when they came back. They were still conscious of a contrite spirit over their sin, a brokenness over their sin. If you look at the first vision in, in that you have in this, in, the, in, this, in this prophecy, in chapter 1, they're, they're described as a grove of myrtle trees. Now, the, the, myrtle, the, the myrtle tree is different from the queenly cedar. It's different from the mighty oak. It's a lowly, it's a lowly tree. It speaks of the state of this, of this church. As they came back, they were still marked with contrition of spirit. They were still marked with a burden of, the felt burden of their sin that still cleaved to them, still clove to them, even when they did come back. That's the condition of the church. They have returned, but the sense, the burden of sin still held on to them. Well, that's the first part, the condition of the church. Secondly, that's the adversary of the church. And of course, this is Satan. And this is fertile ground for Satan. They had come back, but they were very, they still felt contrite over their sin. They still felt the burden of their, their guilt still cleaved, still held on to them. And um, Satan makes much use of that. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And Satan will point out to them the law of God and the nature of their own sin in big block letters. It will show them they're deserving. Look at you, look at you, you you call yourself believers, you call yourselves godly people, but look at you, look at you, you, you turned back from, from his church, from the building of his church, you declined, you disgraced yourselves. You are unworthy to be called such. You're unworthy to be to have the to have the fellowship with the Lord. You're unworthy to be engaged in the service of the Lord. Your sin is great, and the deserving of your sin, when the law says, is inflexible against that. He points that out in block letters, and he hides from them in such small letters that you cannot read them without very good glasses, indecipherably small, he hides from them the grace of God. And you notice that Joshua is quiet. He doesn't say a word. doesn't say a word in his own defense. He's got, a, he's got an accusing conscience. He's got a sense of 
a felt sense of his own sin, even though he's returned. And Satan makes much of that then, to accuse him, to cast him down. Never is Satan more subtle, never is he more powerful in his attacks upon the Lord's people. And when he appears in a form that is a form of penitence, a form of humility, and that's what he's doing here. And he's seeking to lay that church law. That is what you find then with the adversary. And now thirdly, the advocate of the church. The paraclete of the church, the strengthener of the church. And notice it's described as the angel of the Lord, and he's described in, in, in verse 2, I think, as the, as the Lord himself. He is God, but appearing in the form of a man, the angel of the Lord. He's there, in the, he's there as the strengthener, the strong defender of the church against these assaults that the enemy is making upon her. And against these assaults that her own accusing conscience is making upon her. See, going back to the first vision, I spoke of the, the church being described there as a grove of myrtle trees, very lowly. Inscribed also was in the bottom in the, that vision. A very lowly state indeed, a very contrite state, a very burdened state. But ah, Satan would make much of that. But the, to the Lord, the, to the Lord, to the angel of the Lord, this is a pleasant thing. Sacrifice of a broken heart is a sacrifice well pleasing to the Lord. And it's interesting that the leaf of the myrtle tree, when it's bruised, <clears throat> it gives off a pleasant fragrance. And that's what you have here. And a people burdened with their sin, although returned, burdened still with their guilt. The contrition of spirit is giving off to the Lord Himself. It's something pleasing to Him. It's a sacrifice well pleasing to Him. It is like the myrtle tree leaf when crushed. It gives off a pleasant fragrance. And he will be her strengthener. He will be her strengthener. We sang in one of the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 12 that we sang in, uh, words that I pointed out at the time that worthy of note. Uh, For poor oppressed and for the size of needy, rise will I say God, and him in safety set from such as him defy. That's the spirit in which the advocate approaches them. Notice the way that he speaks to Satan. The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. And that word rebuke when it comes, when it's applied to when it's applied to the Lord Himself, it's the sense of the Lord suppress thee. 
It's the it's the what you find uh, in the case of the demon possessed child whom his father brought to the Lord. The Lord rebuked that demon and he departed out of the out of the victim. The Lord's rebuke is strong. It's a word suggesting the Lord suppressed thee, O Satan. Notice the pleas that the Lord, that the angel of the Lord makes on behalf of this oppressed church, this oppressed, this, this church that conscious of her own guilt and sin. The first is the Lord rebuke thee. It's the sense of the Lord will rebuke you, Satan. The Lord will suppress you. And what that shows us is is a very comforting thing. What that shows us is those who attack the Lord's people, they are attacking God himself. That's the way God treats it. The angel of the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you because you're attacking the Lord himself, not just the Lord's people. The great comforting truth of the mystical union between the Lord and his people. Those who attack him, then the Lord regards as attacking him. And that is a great comfort to the burdened soul. And that's what Christ speaks here. That's what the angel of the Lord speaks first of all by way of comfort by way of consolation to this oppressed church still does when we find ourselves in that state of the accusing conscience and the accusing enemy bringing home to us all that he finds within us and he finds plenty to accuse and we can only accept that he's speaking the truth even though he's doing it with malicious with malicious intent, we have to acknowledge, oh, we have nothing in the shells to say. But oh, the Lord speaks words of comfort. The fragrance that is there in the contrition of spirit to him and the words that he speaks, the Lord rebuke thee. Because there is this mystical union, this close relationship between the Lord and his people. And then secondly, there's this plea, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. And therefore, you have there's the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Notice, it's not the, it's not the Lord has chosen Joshua that's spoken there, it's the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem. It speaks of Joshua being representative of the whole body of the return discipline of the theocracy of the church the Lord has chosen the church and how much is there he has chosen her from all eternity in his electing purposes why 
Was it because they saw there could be something worthy in her? Not at all. He chose her because he chose her. He chose, loved her because he loved her. It's motivation and cause as it, finds, it comes from his own heart, not from anything in her. She deserves, left to herself, to be found in a lost hell this day. The Lord has chosen her. And then you can take it not just as the eternal election, but the election in time. When it came to the election of a church, he elected you, you begin with, well, you can go back to Adam if you wish. And he was not a servant. But go to, go to, go to, go to, go to, go to, go to Abraham. And he was found in the midst of idolatry and wickedness. He was chosen not because of any worthiness in himself. The Lord chooses his church not because of any worthiness in her. And look at how ever since he had chosen the church, the, the Jews, the justice people, oh, how often they had transgressed. How often they had gone apart. How often they had sinned against her. Time and again, they had done so. And the Lord had persevered in his choice. You see, there's the comfort here. The Lord's choices are without repentance. Where he has chosen, he continues. And there's a great comfort there to this oppressed church in the face of the accusing conscience and the malicious intents of Satan and to us today when we know something of this it's the sovereignty of God it's the faithfulness of God in his promises the faithfulness of that God who had taken them back from the captivity of Babylon he will not turn from them now not because of any worthiness in them all because he has purposed in love, electing love, eternal electing love, temporal electing love of his people, when he called each and every one at a time, effectually calls them to be with himself. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. And then there's the encouragement further, the further plea that is there made to Satan, is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Isn't that an apt description of the church, the individual believer? We have been where we are the Lord's people today, however much we transgress, however much we go apart, Are we not ones who have been plucked out of the fire, the fire of the condemnation of God's law against us, the fire of the pollution of our sin, the dominion of our sin against us? We have been closed in with Christ. We have been plucked out of that fire of eternal damnation. There is no 
condemnation to those who are in Christ. And they're no longer under the dominion of sin either. They've been plucked out of it. And when the Lord has begun that good work in the soul, he will continue it. He will continue it unto the end, unto the day of Jesus Christ. And there is a third comfort to her in the face of a third encouragement in the face of our difficulties. And then fourthly, there's the words to take off the filthy garments from her and to replace them with new garments. Now if I am right in what I have said to you at the beginning, here's a church, she has, she has put up, she's come back to putting her hand, to putting her shoulder to the plow. She's come back from her uh, backsliddenness. But nevertheless, I'm saying the smell of the filthy garments, the, 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 the sense of the guilt of her sin still cleaves to her. It still burdens her. She's in a state of contrition, of brokenness, of heart over her sin. She doesn't have the joy of the Lord even though she has returned. Why then does it say take off the filthy garments from her? Because in a sense she's put, she's put, she's turned aside from them already. It's in the sense of that she would know herself, that she would realize in her own consciousness, that she would realize in her own soul, as it were, that the Lord has taken that. That, 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 that the Lord has taken that, that condemnation away. That the filthy garments have been taken from her. Not that they should be taken away, but that she should have the consciousness that they have been taken away. Is the way I'm looking at it. That she should realize that it's not in, the in her own merits. It's not in her own merits that her deserving is going to consist. You see, she's returned and she's got this sense of guilt. And oh, what can we do to put things right? No, it's not like that. The Lord has taken away. You look to the one who has taken away the burden. You look to the one who has taken away the guilt. You look to Christ in whom to whom your sin has been imputed when you believed in him and in whom his righteousness has been put to your account. It's the glorious doctrine, the realization in your own consciousness, not just in your knowledge of it, but in the consciousness of it, in the midst of her, in the midst of her burden, the consciousness that her guilt has been taken away, that, that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to her instead. It's what you find with Martin Luther. You might have read about him in the Wartburg when he was being held prisoner. He was very burdened. Now here's a man of God, you see. He was, but nevertheless he was burdened, just like this church, 
burdened with their guilt, burdened with their, with their, with their sin, burdened with the fact that he couldn't pray as he would like to, burdened with the fact that uh, he, couldn't have, he couldn't, didn't have the good thoughts that he wanted to have, burdened with sin in his different forms. And we find this in a letter that he wrote to another reformer, a man called Melanchthon. And in that letter he speaks that in the midst of his in the midst of his felt burden about his guilt, he began to think in terms of he had, he had, a, he had a sense of Satan coming into him with a scroll in his hand and unrolling that scroll and opening as he as he unrolled that scroll pointing out to him every sin that he had ever been guilty of, one by one, and mocking him as he went through them. And at the end you find Martin Luther saying, well, it, it's actually said the legend says that he threw the ink well at him and spawned on the wall, but leave that aside, but what, the, what he said was, um, or through Satan. And you can add to these many, many others in addition to what you have been giving me. But after them, write this. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin and all iniquity. Now that's what you have here. And a, a burdened church, a burdened with her guilt before <coughs> he had returned, burdened with an accusing conscience, But the Lord wants her to realize what Jordan Luther realized. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin and from all guilt. What a, what a comfort that is to the burdened soul. The filthy garments taken away and the righteousness of Christ imputed to her in his place. The glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. These are the ways that the Lord comforts, the angel of the Lord comforts them, this burdened church. The Lord rebuke thee. The Lord suppress thee, pointing out this mystical union that exists between the church and Christ. The Lord has chosen his church. He has chosen Jerusalem. He has done so without any deserving on her part. He has done so perseveringly in the face of her many transgressions. He has done so not because of any worthiness of un or unworthiness on her part. He has done so because of the faithfulness of his own word and his own, his own love. He loved her because he loved her and he's not going to turn from it. The choices of God are without repentance. And there's thirdly, is not this a grand plucked to the fire? For the Lord has begun that good work. He's going to continue it. Unto the day of Jesus Christ, it's all of God, it's all of grace. And there's this that we've just been laboring to point out 
that she might come to a realization in her own soul of the wonder of this doctrine of justification by faith, the righteousness of Christ being imputed, and the sin, our sin, being imputed to him, the filthy garments being played upon him in my Roman place. These are the ways that the angel of the Lord, the Saviour, the Saviour comforts his church in the face of such oppression. But notice just in parting there's words that are there just in case we treat this gratuitous justification and say and treat it and, and, and abuse it for license. As if we as you hear me say, I have been saved, I am saved and I can live the way I like. The Lord points out in words that follow. There must be the as well as the the right the, the, the garments of of the breastplate of righteousness and so on, the high priest was to wear the prophet says, put on a tiara. The tiara, the turban on her head. And that speaks of that there should be holiness to the Lord also. She has title to glory in the righteousness of Christ imputed to her. But she must have fitness for the enjoyment of it. She must have alongside the justification an ongoing sanctification, an ongoing cleansing, an ongoing growth in holiness that she might be fitted at the last for the enjoyment of heaven into which nothing unclean can enter. May the Lord bless to us in meditation and spirit. Let us pray. We thank thee for the encouragement that thou dost still give, even in the scriptures of the Old Testament, even in the experiences of thy church of old. To those who pass through circumstances similar, even in our own day, even when we seek to return into thy service from backlenched, from backsliddenness. And when the smell of the filthy garment still cleaves to us, when we are cast down, when our own conscience accuses us, when Satan comes in to add to that, when we are as the, the myrtle grove in the bottom, Oh, blessed be thy name that there is one to encourage. And oh, that we would learn to come to him again and again. My soul cleaves to dust, as a psalmist, but quicken me according to thy word. Draw me to thyself, that we may run after thee. May we learn in every time that this burden of sin is brought home to us to apply immediately unto him who has the balm of Gilead to apply to our souls. Draw near to us in thy mercy. Take away iniquity. In his name, Amen. <coughs> <coughs>
We sing in Psalm 68 from verse 18 to 20. victorious led captive captivity from 18 to 20.